Pachango. Kiddos, how's it going out there? Coming to you Sunday, February 4th from Crestone, Colorado, where it snowed like a motherfucker the last few days. Uh, probably got two feet of beautiful snow outside right now. Uh, I uh, included a photo of Scarlett Johansson buried under snow in the recent um, newsletter that I sent out. So if you don't get that newsletter, that means you are not subscribed uh, on Substack, which you can do for free. Just go to chrisryan.substack.com and um, plug in your email and you'll get a, a monthly update from me just sort of saying these are the episodes um, that are coming soon. These are some episodes that have posted recently, uh, some stuff I've written recently, and uh, whatever else goes out, occasional emails. Um, I'm doing a brain dump, uh, I call them, uh, just stuff I've seen or read or videos I've seen that are cool or movies I've seen that are cool, just sharing the wealth um, those go out every few weeks, uh, whenever, whenever enough accumulates in my head that I want to share some stuff. Anyway, you can do that for free. And then if you, uh, decide to support the podcast for five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, then you get all kinds of bonus material as well. But, um, there's certainly the free option. And as I always say, if you would like the bonus material, but you can't afford it, or you live in a country that doesn't participate in the global banking system, just drop me a line, um, through the contact form on Substack and I'll hook you up. This episode is with someone you've probably heard of. Her name is Amanda Knox. She's from Seattle, Washington. And, um, She's one of these people who, you know, most people who are famous seek it. They they make great sacrifices and struggle mightily to become famous. But occasionally people become famous through uh, happenstance, serendipity, uh, whether it's seemingly good luck like winning a lottery or seemingly bad luck like being accused of killing someone you didn't kill you didn't you weren't even there um and it becomes an international case which is what happened with amanda um she talks about the story but you may remember it um she was uh, an exchange student in italy and uh, she was convicted, actually, uh, for the murder of her housemate, Meredith Kircher, Kircher uh, in 2007. Um, and Amanda ended up spending almost four years in prison in Italy. So it's been a big part of her life. Uh, she's, what, 36, I think, at this point, 37, she might have said. 
Um, so, you know, four years of your life when you're in your mid thirties, that's a big chunk of life. Uh, cause as far as I'm concerned, your life doesn't start till you're, you know, 20, 24, somewhere in there when you sort of become who you are. And then it's just a question of aging, you know, you're in the oak barrel and now it's just an aging process. That's when life starts. So, man, if if life starts at 25 and now you're, you know, 30, 10 years later and you spent four years in prison, that's nearly half your fucking life. Um, so that's a huge, a huge situation for Amanda. And I'm really happy to report that she is awesome. So who knows? It reminds me of that story uh about the the monk and the it it's told really well in a film called Charlie Wilson's War uh if you've never seen that it's well worth checking out both for the historical content uh cuz it really explains something about the history of US involvement in Afghanistan but also for the great writing great acting it's a very well done film and Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a CIA agent, and uh, he tells Tom Cruise, who's a senator, uh, this story. And, and basically the story is um, a kid, something, it's a, a Japanese village or something, and this kid uh, gets a horse. And everyone says, oh, this kid's so lucky, he, he got a horse. And the monk says, mm, we'll see. And then the kid falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And everyone says, oh, my God, this kid's so unlucky. He fell and broke his leg. And the monk says, well, we'll see. And then war breaks out. And all the young men get recruited and sent to war. Except this guy, because of his broken leg, he can't go to war. And everyone says, oh, you're so lucky you didn't go to war when everyone else had to go and risk their lives. And the monk says, well... We'll see. And so you get the you get the gist of it. I won't keep going. The point is things happen to us that seem like really good luck or really bad luck. And then later we look back and say, hmm, it looks different now. We never really know at the time. Milan Kundera writes about that in The Unbearable Lightness of Being, how we really can only understand our lives in retrospect. While we're living in the moment, we don't know is this a good thing or a bad thing that's happening to me? It feels horrible, but maybe it creates depth in me. Maybe it creates compassion. Maybe it puts me in a position of wisdom that I wouldn't have had without this seemingly horrible experience. We never know until much later. And even then, sometimes we don't know. I look back at things in my life and I don't know, was that good, bad? I don't know. I, I don't know. I know how it felt at the time, but in retrospect, I don't really know how to judge it. Anyway, Amanda, uh, awesome woman, smart, funny, kind, compassionate, um, just real pleasure to speak with her. And um, I'm really, I'm really glad to bring this conversation to you. Uh, so most of the conversation or about half of the conversation is part of the free podcast. And then, uh, as usual, there's part that's only for the paying subscribers. 
the conversation is also available for paying subscribers on YouTube. So that's part of the bonus content that you can watch the conversation I had with Amanda. And she, I'm just sitting in my normal dingy little office space here, but Amanda has a very cool studio with shag carpet and neon signs and all that. Um, where I guess she records uh, some of her sessions for her own podcast. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda Knox. Thanks for listening. Those of you who are listening to this podcast on audio only, you are not seeing the red, the red, the uh, white shag carpet, the yellow sofa, the neon sign and Amanda's blue. This is all like very basic colors. I like this. this is... <laughs> yeah, very primary. I didn't even, that's primary. not even intentional. <laughs> that's the word, primary colors. So Amanda, thank you for doing this. We've been sort of uh, going back and forth for a while because I really, you, you've all, you agreed to do the podcast over a year ago. I don't know when it was. Um, yeah, and then we lost track or something. <laughs> well, because I mean, I didn't want to do it online because I really wanted to meet you. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I find part of what I love about doing the podcast is it gives you an opportunity to meet people that you're fascinated by or you admire or, or whatever. Um, it gives them a reason to sit down with you for a while. And uh, I go to Seattle pretty regularly on these van trips. So I thought, well, let's just save it. I'll go to you know, I want to see Dan Savage and, yeah. you know, I have some other friends in Seattle I'd like to to reconnect with. And, but uh, for many reasons, it didn't, I think you had a baby somewhere in there. Oh yeah. I've been having babies a lot these days. Yeah. You've been pumping <laughs> them out like an Irish yeah. woman. <laughs> not like an Irish woman. Thank God. Um, <laughs> not I was yet. not, <laughs> I am uh, like, yeah, I, th I think we're probably done with two, yeah. um, but you never know. And oops might be around the corner. I just, I just, is hope that I what can... you would name the third child? Oops. Yeah, probably. <laughs> We do have very unconventional names, but that does like follow. <laughs> First one's called, you know, aspiration. Eureka. Oh, Eureka, really? Yeah, these actually oops would be perfect because we decided <laughs> that we were going to name our kids based upon like things that you would exclaim. Yeah. So like Eureka, we had a Eureka moment. We we're like, oh, Eureka would be amazing for um, a little a girl's beautiful name. name. And, and it worked yeah. out. So Eureka wow. is her name. Then we were thinking about baby number two, who's three months old at this time. We were thinking we found out it was a boy. So we decided, OK, what's a boy name? And we were thinking of like Bravo or, you know, um, Shucks. What was it? <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> You're sort of giving him a personality type by naming him Shucks. <laughs> but we, we ended up naming him Echo. Uh -huh. And um and oops would be perfectly in line. With... Wow. Those are beautiful names. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I I I have a, like a little, you know, amateur comedy bit I do uh sometimes because I'm so bad at remembering people's names and so my my shtick is but it's not my fault. It's because names don't mean anything in our culture. Mm. You know? I mean Totally. It's totally, it's it, it, it like what could be more meaningless than like, you know, Bob, 
Right. You Bob. might as well be person number 362. Exactly. Or just three, because it's yeah. just Bob. You know, there's not even a six and a two. It's just Bob or Lou, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like, this is fucking, and they come from, you know, most of them come from the Bible. So right. they're okay. all interchangeable. They're Everyone all interchangeable. has the same names. Yeah. So who gives a shit? Your name's Bob and I called you Joe. So what? I mean, <laughs> right the spirit was the same <laughs> yeah like if if your name were you know eureka i would have remembered see you know right so that's no cool one's gonna that, forget her name yeah exactly it's <laughs> it's fantastic um so anyway listen thank you for doing this i know you i mean you're you're someone who is um famous by accident which I think is a really yeah. interesting status to have in a culture that worships fame. Yeah, it's definitely been an odd experience to come back home and like interact with high school age kids who want to know what it's like to be famous. And I, I swear that was one of the first questions anyone ever asked me after coming home from prison. And I was like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's not what it feels like. Or like when people say, oh, you're a celebrity and it's like, I'm not feeling super celebrated. So, um, yeah, it's a different kind of fame uh, and fame has lots of colors and variations, as it turns out. Are you still getting that like recognized in public thing or has that faded? Oh, no, I get recognized a lot still to this day. Is that mostly in Seattle or... Mm -mm. Um, really? I, yeah, I get, I get, um, it's typically it's people coming up to me when I'm not in Seattle, because at least when I'm in here in Seattle, people recognize me and immediately think, oh, Amanda Knox, um, like they immediately recognize me and can put the name to the face. Right. Typically what happens when I'm other places is I'm recognized, but people can't exactly, they don't remember why they recognize me. So they'll see my face. They go, I know who that person is. Right. And then they come up to me and go, why do I know who you are? Right. Um, and then yeah. I have to decide whether or not I want to tell them why they know who I am. Right. And what do you say? Do you, do you have a backup story or? Uh, um, it really depends on how I'm feeling. So yeah. if I'm in a hurry, typically I just don't want to get into it. And so I'll just say, I don't know. And then I'll try to escape. Right. Um, but most of the time what I'll do, and again, this is like, I'll be at the airport or I'll be checking into a hotel or, you know, something like that. And I'll say, well, are you a true crime person? Mm -hmm. um, you may be familiar with a documentary that has that's about a horrible thing that happened to me. You know, whatever. Right. Like I'll I'll sort of coax them into like, you've probably seen me either in a documentary or in some kind of magazine um, in association with this horrific murder case. Um, and so then they'll go, oh, and then feel kind of embarrassed and that I'll just be like, but no worries. It's cool. Have a great day. And mm. that's usually the extent of it. Sometimes people want to stick around and talk about it more, um, which is okay. Um, but it's not my, uh, it's not my favorite thing to talk about just randomly out of the blue without preparation yeah. with a random stranger. Yeah. 
And it's something you've talked about a million times in a million different contexts, ranging from courtrooms to TV studios to, you know, shag carpeted podcast booths. <laughs> exactly. It's not something you really need to go over. I When I get recognized, I just tell people they're thinking of Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and just move <laughs> oh, on. Oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're the one who's there to remind us of him. I, I'm hoping I'll play him in the biopic. I'm hoping someone will give me a shot, you know? You know what? I I have I I know a few people in that industry. I'll float your name. <laughs> float it. Float it. Uh yeah, I, I once I, I won't tell the story, it takes forever, but through a very strange set of coincidences, I found myself in the office of one of the founders of HBO uh Michael Fuchs is his name okay and I was pitching I was for for a brief period after Sex of Dawn came out I was being pitched as the Anthony Bourdain of sex so hey, I that's was, not a bad thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little I, bit here a little bit there let's go around let's right, check it out <laughs> that was the idea I was just going to go around the world and you know, hey, this week we're in Bangkok and we're going to, you know, and we're going <laughs> to bang some cock. Um, yeah. So anyway, I found myself in this guy's office. As soon as he walked into the office and looked at me, he said, well, I know who's going to play you in the movie. And I was like, what? And he said, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I was like, oh, right. TV. Hey. He, there are excellent actors out there, and he is an excellent actor. So, oh, he's a great actor, not a particularly good looking guy. I'd rather oh. be recognized as like a, a bad actor, you know, but Brad Pitt, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take what I'll take what I get anyway. Uh, yeah, so fame, uh, interest, it, fame is such a weird thing. Um, I once asked, uh, I, I have a friend who's, um, He's famous and he's rich. Okay. And I said, that to him, helps. yeah. <laughs> and I said to him, if you had to give up the fame or the wealth and just have the other, what would you choose? Oh, obviously the fame. He said the wealth. What? Yeah. He's crazy. Why did he say that? I want to know the answer to that. Because he said, he said, lots of people are rich but not as many people are famous and it's the fame that gets me invited to truly interesting situations. You should just get a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He he actually tried and failed. He was, uh, he was one of the first guests on my podcast. He's a famous medical doctor named Andrew Weil. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah. Big, big beard, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. I don't know if it was on the podcast or. All right. So, he wants to get invited to some exclusive parties is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I And I think just meeting interesting people, right? Like, so be, and also you have to think about his fame, right? It's not like mm-hmm. your fame or my fame, right? Uh, his fame is, you know, leading expert on alternative health pra- practices and, you know, Chinese and Ayurvedic and all this kind of stuff. So because he's known for that, right? you know, and Jeff Bezos has a headache, he probably says, call Andrew Weil, right? right? Um, so yeah, they're- I get they're that. I mean, reputation is huge. It's a huge part of your identity. Um, it's the way that people know how to interact with you. So I can understand that. 
um, especially if you have a nice reputation right. um, that corresponds with reality. That helps. Um, yeah. Good point. <laughs> Your fame. I mean, there's always a disconnect between um, what people are famous for and who they actually are. Right. Um, I was with a friend of mine and um, Simon Rex. I don't know if you've heard of him. He Mm-mm. he was a he's an actor. He was in like scary movie through two, three, four or something. And okay, uh, I know, wasn't able to watch those because even movies that are funny about scary movies, I can't watch because I just can't do scary movies. Of they course. Just... <laughs> I, yeah. Anyway, we we were in a cafe one time and this woman recognized me and we started chatting and I gave her my number. I was like, yeah, we'll have a coffee. And and then when we left, he was like, never do that, dude. Never, never, you know, give a fan your number. That's a Mm -hmm. terrible mistake. Anyway, I became good friends with this woman. I'm still friends with her 10 years later. And at some point, Simon and I were talking. He said, you know, I realized I was wrong Hmm. because because you're. I mean, I'm very minor, 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 you know, fame, whatever I've got. Um, But it's, he said, people actually know you. Hmm. You're famous because of the book you wrote and then the podcast. And on your podcast, you're just you, right? Right. So when they meet you, that's you. Whereas when people meet me, they're expecting this character I play. Hmm. And so it's always disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, and weird and awkward because they're like, yo, dirt nasty. And it's like, that's a fucking character. I play. Yeah. <laughs> and so your situation is similar in that people have this image of you that's based on false accusations in the first place. And also something that happened, what, 10 years ago or more? Uh, well, I'm 36 now and I was arrested so, when I was 20. So right. um, it all started 16 years ago. It took about eight years to play itself out. Um, so it's been about eight years ish since it's been all over. Right. So Although, it's not, it's not you in any sense now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for me is that I became a known person known as that girl who was accused of murder. And that like has nothing to do do with me like the way that this story should have played out is nobody ever would even know who I was just like a lot of people don't even remember that Meredith and I had two other roommates I should have been one of those nameless roommates who just happened to have been in this like uh, you know tangentially a part of this very you know sad and tragic story um, but unremembered and unremarkable and then for you know the various reasons that we can discuss or not discuss because it's been discussed at length. Um, instead, I became this weird centered focus and uh, of the story that's not my own um, or hasn't felt like my own for a very long time. Um, it's only been in the past several years that I've really started to um, accept that it's it's not just, you know, the story of what happened to Meredith. It's also the story of what happened to me. And those are two separate stories. They just happen to be, they, they happen to walk side by side. And there's more to my experience than just being accused of murder. There's the whole aspect of what I've done in response to that. But for a long time, I felt very, very trapped by the fact that 
what people knew me for or thought they knew me for was something that had absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, and there was nothing I could do about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was totally out of your control. Someone like Simon chooses to play a character. Mm -hmm. You were placed in a, it's almost like you were placed in a movie starring you <laughs> for which you make no money. Uh -huh. <laughs> Everyone else is making money from it. Yeah. In and fact, they just stuck me in a room. They basically stuck me in a room and then told a story. <laughs> they made a movie about me right. while I was stuck in a room. <laughs> so th this is an awkward question to ask. I'm sure it's an awkward question for you to answer, but I think it's it's central to this. Um, I know you hate the whole Foxy Noxy thing, right? As you should. Um, but how do you think this would have played out if you had not been a very attractive young American woman, because you got typecast, I I think, I don't know if you would agree, but your typecast is like, oh, these crazy American girls come over here with their voracious sexuality. They're not good Catholic Italian girls. So there's like a clash symbolically mm -hmm. that you got caught in the crossfire of. Yeah. So yeah. how would it have played out if you had not been photogenic and, you know, attracted all this press? And would the narrative have still played out this way? Or do you think it would have been no, no big story? That's a really good question. Um, so I think that the press was already very interested in this case from the get go before. Like, so you know, Meredith's body was discovered on November 1st. I wasn't arrested until November 6th. So there was this like five day gap where a lot of things happened. And a lot of them had to do with there being already sort of international media attention on this particular murder case because Meredith was an attractive young woman. Uh, so okay. there's also the question of if Meredith wasn't also an attractive young woman, would this case have become the thing that it was, this, this monster that it was? And I think part of the answer is no, I, I don't think it wouldn't. I think the fact that she was a very young, attractive young woman who had everything going for her um, made this case from the beginning of international interest. Would that interest have prolonged itself for the for the years that it's gone on, would it have been turned into a Netflix documentary? Would it, you know, I don't think so. Um, I think that the minute that I became arrested, that I was accused and suddenly it wasn't just a beautiful young woman is murdered. It's now a beautiful young woman is murdered by a beautiful young woman. That became this toxic irresistible story that this you know no media uh, be it you know the the tabloids or the legitimate news media could resist and um and as long as the case was going on and these cases take a long time to resolve in italy just due to its judicial system it just went on and on and on and became this uh this endless seemingly endless desire for what turned into to turned into Foxy Noxy content right. where people just wanted the latest Foxy Noxy headline and were, you know, tripping over themselves to even make them up <laughs> so that they would get to be able to sell that story.
Yeah. That's a, that's, that's really, it's amazing how these things that we think are advantages so often turn toxic, mm -hmm. physical beauty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a pretty face. Yeah. Boom. You know, it, it's Yeah, like it's interesting because like it, usually in criminal cases, um, when a defendant is a is physically attractive, it tends to work out in their favor. Mm. Um, in my case, however, I feel like I'm the exception that proves the rule potentially because I was the fact that I was attractive made it so that people could um people enjoyed even didn't they it didn't just like they were able to imagine me in a hypersexualized scenario, but they sort of enjoyed it along the way. Right. Um and I, yeah. I got I got like this vibe throughout the entire time that I was going through this that there was like not just, you know, macabre interest in this case, but there was also pornographic interest in it. Right. Um and right. it just felt really gross the entire time. Has that, and this is very personal and feel free not to answer, of course, but I, I can't help but wonder if that has affected your own sexuality, it, mm. you know, created blockages to areas where your sexuality may have flowed naturally without having had this experience. Oh, sure. I mean, I, here I am talking to the Anthony Bourdain of sex, so it would be <laughs> negligent of me not to discuss this. <laughs> um, never happened. Yeah. <laughs> I never became the Anthony Bourdain of anything. Well, you know what? Here is the pilot for your here show. We go. Here we go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I went into this entire experience 20 years old. Then the number of partners that I had in my life I could count on my fingers um I had very limited I mean I not you know no experience but I definitely had what I think of as limited experience I only lost my virginity when I was 18 not when I was you know younger and in my teens or whatever um and I didn't really go into this experience with a sexual identity. Like I didn't, you know, if someone had mm. asked me, oh, what do you like? What do you not like? I would not have been able to tell them. Mm. Um, I, I would have no idea what to say. Um, and in fact, I remember um, back in college, um, one of one person I was dating asked me if I had any like sexual fantasies. And I didn't. I just I had I, I didn't. I I I felt so embarrassed to like I just I even just made something up. I was like uh outside like camping or something. And he, he was like outside. <laughs> <laughs> I like bugs crawling on my skin. I guess I don't know. Like let's go camping. Ah. <laughs> That's so funny. The, I, that's like a pilot in itself, right? Like you just make something up. I don't, I don't know. Like I don't. I don't go onto Pornhub and have a very like specific yeah. search that like, I'm yeah. looking for. I don't Whatever. know. Whatever. Chef's choice. <laughs> and then I go into this experience, and like I'm immediately put in in prison, where I am locked away, and I think that I'm probably going to. Well, you know, as soon as I'm convicted and sentenced to 26 years, I'm anticipating. You know, I, I like sex was like the least of my worries about things that I had to grieve. The thing that I was really grieving was the loss of the opportunity to have a family. That's mm -hmm. something that I really like. 
here's here's a sex fantasy for you. I wanted to be a mom. <laughs> and like I that's something that I had always dreamed about. A MILF and- or, or just a mom? Just a mom, although my husband says that I'm now entering MILF territory. <laughs> um, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I I wanted to be a mom, and that's what I was grieving. I was not thinking about, you know, I'm never going to have sex again in my in my entire life. And in, um, so, yeah, and then I come out of prison, and I'm defined as Foxy Noxy, this, you know, femme fatale who orchestrated a sex orgy that turned into a murder orgy. And just the imagination that people had that and their own sexual fantasies that I felt were being projected onto me yeah. made me feel um, very self-conscious, very, um, very trapped um, in those first few years that I when I was first released from prison, but I was still on trial. Like I didn't even make new friends just because I just didn't know what other people thought they thought about me. And even that proved to be um, not even full, like a full, fully safe place for me to be because in the meantime, while I was, you know, gone and away and going through this horrible experience, people that I had known even before going to Italy had their ideas around me sort of transformed and and I became an an idea in people's minds, not just for people who didn't know me, but even pe- for people who did, at least before, um, because, you know, I became this like icon of injustice for a lot of like for some people who knew me even before. And I felt like I remember somebody who I was friends with, um, like, you know, back in school kind of thing. I hadn't seen in several years or whatever. I came home and uh, we were chatting and he told me that he thought that I was the reincarnation of Joan of Arc. Um, And I was just like, oh, no pressure. Just the reincarnation of Joan of Arc. (laughs) Like, and, and again, like I felt that sense of like people are sort of projecting these ideas onto me, whether they are sexual or otherwise. So you know, finding my way back into a sex life and into intimate relationships was fraught for me. Yeah. Um, Not even back same... into, right? Like just <laughs> yeah, into. Just into at all. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like that has led me to be on the one hand cautious at times and on the other hand reckless at times because I felt so at times I felt very repressed. Like I remember um, I was advised never to go like out in public, like to a bar or something. And I remember feeling really rebellious at certain, like I would, I absolutely did not. And like, I just did not go to bars and I did not meet people and I did not go on dating websites. And I just did not, did not, did not. No, 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 no. But then like, you know, every once in a while I would feel just like, oh, I'm so sick of just, being stuck in my apartment, not talking to anybody. And then I would just go to a bar and I would feel like on edge the entire time because I like both wanted somebody to talk to me and was terrified of somebody talking to me. Um, And I only just got lucky in my life that I was able to meet my now husband the way that I did, um, which we have a really sweet, meet cute story. And he's always been incredibly um kind and thoughtful as a partner to me 
um, kind of shockingly so considering how particular my experience is, but he's a very good communicator, a very good listener. And so in the process of meeting him and getting to know him and then becoming intimate with him, we took it very slow. Like I met him and then we became friends and we were friends for like a good nine months before we started dating and, you know, and then things went from there. That's um, great. That's yeah. really great that you met someone who, who has the capacity to, I mean, you, you, you would have been such a, um, the particular, the word you used was particular, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is not like any woman you've ever met. You're going to have to like rewrite your whole script for this one, you know, if yeah. you want to be close to her because, you know, convincing a woman that you're trustworthy, I think is always the centerpiece of any kind of, I don't want to use the word seduction because seduction implies inauthenticity, but right. You know, any kind of coming together with someone. Courtship. Yeah, yeah, courtship. Because women, all women have been screwed over so many times by so many, you know, men and society in general. And in your case, it's just amplified so much. Um, that's really great that that you found someone who understood that and wasn't just trying to treat you like, you know, another girl. That yeah. Would... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And here I am, like, you know, terrified that anybody that I'm going to meet is going to just take pictures of me while I'm in a, you know, mm. vulnerable situation and sell them to a tabloid oh, or who geez, knows I what they're going to think like, about that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought about all those things. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Here's a weird question for you. Before you met your husband, did you ever think about getting in touch with the Italian guy that you were seeing at the time all this went down and have this like cinematic uh, love oh, story? A cinematic romance love story. Um, yeah. So Raffaele is his name, Raffaele Solecito. And I think that, I mean, so here's, here's the story with Raffaele. We knew each other for five days before the, we found out that this crime had occurred and then, you know, we knew each other for another couple of days before mm. we were arrested. Right. So we did not have a long courtship, right? right? Like we had a few days and we were, you know, really into each other in those, in those first few days. Like we absolutely were just like smitten with each other, but we didn't know each other right. and we got to know each other under really really horrific circumstances yeah. um where not only were we both accused of a, a heinous crime that we didn't commit and we were both just like stuck in jail separately but together we also were being constantly watched so any correspondence that we wrote to each other was confiscated and delivered to the prosecution um, any time we even looked at each other when we were in the courtroom, there would be people snapping pictures and trying to like, you know, guess what are we communicating to each other secretly? And it felt like I think that all of that pressure really killed any hope at Raffaele and I pursuing any kind of romantic attachment to each other sure instead we became um sort of friends who were going through a gauntlet together but even so like it we weren't 
able to communicate all that much. Um, again, like it was a, it was it would go against the advice of our lawyers for us to even write a letter to each other because it was just more stuff that they would have to then talk about in court because the cops were going to get their hands on it and they were going to interpret it the way that they wanted to interpret it. Yeah. So we we ended up like most of our communication was happening in these in-between moments. Like we were both brought into court together, but we were, you know, typically we were driven to the court in separate um, in separate vans because we were coming from separate prisons. And the only time that we would have with each other in private, in quote private, was when we were put into cells right next to each other um, before being brought into the courtroom. So we were brought in from our separate vans and we were put into these two separate cells that were like downstairs in the courthouse, like in the basement. And they were not cells where we could even see each other. There was a brick wall between us, but we could talk to each other. And we would just say things like, hey, how are you doing? Like, hang in there. Um, I hope you're OK. I hope your family's OK. Like really just very simple stuff like that. But even then, that wasn't in private. It wasn't intimate because there were guards outside of the cell listening to us and talking sure. to us, too. And probably so, microphones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like every our every little movement was was being observed and scrutinized. And so. Under that kind of pressure, we we became very practical <laughs> yeah. and we were just trying to survive this experience together um, and also separately. And his experience of this whole ordeal is fascinating. I mean, I recommend talking to him as well because he, unlike me, like my name became this like huge thing. Everyone wanted to know about me and what's going on with her and projecting all their like fantasies onto me. And no one really seemed to care about him. He was just kind of there because he was my alibi. Um, and and so he talks about it as if he was Mr. Nobody, like nobody cared about him mm. and his lack of criminal like history and his lack of motivation in this cry, like all of that. Nobody seemed to give a shit. And as a result, he felt like his identity sort of disappeared into my own, like he became a sort of appendage of Amanda mm. and he resented that rightfully so, justifiably so. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so coming out of this experience when it was finally, finally over, I mean, he was the first person that I called, like as soon as we got, you know, as soon as it was they're acquitted forever, blah, blah, blah. Like I called him immediately, just like tears in my eyes, like we're, it's, we're done, we're free, it's over, it's over. He was celebrating with his family in the US or in um, in Italy while I was in the US. Um, and then it was like, God, now we can just have our lives again. But of course we couldn't just have our lives again because our lives were forever transformed and I could not go back to being the anonymous college student and nor could he. Um, and I think we've been grappling with how and he has been grappling, especially with how a chance encounter with a pretty girl in a college town turned into this in, this incredible experience in his life that has forever changed him and will forever, you know, dictate the the boundaries of his life in a big way. Do you know what's going on with him now? Uh, yeah, actually, I was just um, texting with him this morning um, because there's a um, the 
there's a, a U.S. like exoneree registry that sort of tries to track all the wrongful convictions in the U.S. and they're starting one in Europe. And um, we've been asked to speak at a conference together about this experience. We were just talking about it that this morning. Mm. He's, you know, working in Italy. He's living with his family. Um, but he's had the impact that it's had on his life has been a, a little bit different than mine. Like he's had trouble finding work. I've not even attempted to find like regular work, really. I've just been like working for myself ever since this has been over. I got like a minimum wage job at a, a underground bookstore for a while. But other than that. So he's like and, you know, personally, he's had some more challenges because, again, like he did try to do the dating websites and then got catfished by a bunch of like tabloid reporters and like, you know, this whole ordeal mm. <laughs> that he's had to go through because also I feel like I've been lucky by comparison. Like I got I, it was a lucky chance encounter that I ran into my husband and he hasn't had that same kind of uh, lucky encounter. So mm. he's. He's still trying to find his person. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope it works out for him. Me too. All right. Thank you for listening to that section of my conversation with Amanda Knox. If you'd like to hear the rest of it, please consider going to chrisryan.substack.com and uh, supporting the podcast for as little as $5 a month, 50 bucks a year. Um, standard pricing, no tears. I mean, not crying tears. I mean, tiered sponsorships like with, uh, Patreon. It's just one price for everybody. You're in, you're out, you're on, you're off. It's digital. Thanks for listening. And, uh, I hope to uh, see you over at Substack. Ciao. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say It's a big deal if 
wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.